Namaste. You are listening to It's All Relative, the podcast where we look at crime in the family in all its permutations. People, I know that the world rarely works like we want it to, but we are all animals, mammals, and most mammals enter some form of hibernation in the winter. Why does Western culture persist in this insanity that we shouldn't be hibernating? While writing this script, it is negative 26 centigrade or negative 15 Fahrenheit outside. I really can't believe anyone needs me to explain this concept further. All this is to say that if anyone missed the pod during my winter hiatus, blame it on natural mammalian torpor and metabolism. Today, we are taking a trip to the other side of the world, to a place that is very different from the U.S. and certainly a good deal warmer than my home state. My name is Kaylee, and today we are heading to Pakistan. But before I jump down the rabbit hole, some words of caution. Number one, this podcast is a true crime podcast, so do I really need to outline what that means for tender ears? Come on, people. Two, this whole podcast is done by me, me, and me. So don't go after anyone else for the content. And honestly, just don't go after anyone. Be nice people, Jesus. This podcast exposes the worst humans can bring to the table, and I still hope that we can all just get along. No cliche intended. So, to set the mood for our journey, here is MIA. On the morning of July 15th, 2016, Anwar Bibi woke in a fog. She felt woozy and wobbly, but she still did what was expected of her. She rose from her bed to prepare breakfast. When she went to wake her daughter, Anwar tried to shake her awake. Her daughter seemed deeply asleep, but when Anwar touched her, she immediately knew. Her daughter, 26-year-old Fuzia, was not asleep. She was dead. It would be wrong for me to talk about this case without at least a bit of a background on Pakistan. For a very basic foundation, Pakistan was created in the wake of the Second World War, carved out of the former British Empire in India, and set up as a nation for the Muslims of that newly former colony. Depending upon your knowledge of South Asia and the Islamic world, when you hear that Pakistan is a Muslim country, you may think of Sharia law in its most oppressive sense particularly in the purpose of its formation, a.k.a. set up for Muslims. While Pakistan is more religiously homogeneous than its colonial parent, India, the one Islamic people concept of which Paki creators had dreamt didn't quite come to fruition. As with most political venues, there are conservatives and liberals, and just to make that point, Pakistan even had a woman prime minister in the 1990s. It may be that a vast expanse between conservative and liberal ideologies causes a reactionary response when one ideology does something. By this I mean, when one ideological point of view is expressed, the opposite ideology often pushes hard to have its ideas hurt. This, of course, does not always happen, but the tendency seems to be that the farther one viewpoint is from common middle ground, the farther from middle the opposite viewpoint will be. 
and the louder and more stalwart its proponents will be. Just look at how polarized the U.S. has become since Trump became president. So while Pakistan does have many moments of Islamic liberalism, there are also many moments of Islamic conservatism. And this does include some of those very extreme concepts that give Sharia law a bad rep in Western countries. One of the extremes that shines with an ugly light is the glare of the honor killing rate. Pakistan has the highest level of honor killings throughout the Muslim world. Estimates vary, but total honor killings per year are roughly 5,000. And of that, 1,000, so 20%, are in Pakistan. And just in case you don't know what an honor killing is, the thinking is essentially that a member of a family commits a sin. This can be a transgression of Muslim law or of a cultural taboo. Oftentimes, culture and religion are intertwined to the point that people within that culture slash religion cannot see where one ends and the other begins. This is not just a situation for the Muslim world, by the way, but since that is where we are right now, I'm limiting my discussion to that sector. Continuing on. So, a family member has committed a transgression. This has caused shame to the family's honor. The members of the family decide that the only way to restore that honor is to kill the offending transgressor. Most of these killings are committed by men against women, but it's not exclusive. Women will take part in the killings. Men can be killed, although it is often in conjunction with the death of a woman. For example, a young man and woman like each other. This young man has not been chosen as a husband for the young woman. Therefore, they are both guilty of a sin against the family or families. The sin is usually worse on the side of the young woman, but the young man can be accused for encouraging the connection. And understand, this death sentence can be given just on a suspicion. Let that sink in a minute. Fuzia Azim was born March 1, 1990, in the very conservative and generally economically poor area of Multan in Pakistan's Punjab province. Her parents, Anwar and Mohammed, had a total of nine children, six boys and three girls. In her book, A Woman Like Her, the journalist Sanam Meher talks about this area of Pakistan. Quote, a thermal power station with lazy puffs of smoke curling from its cooling towers powers the entire region. Great swoops of cable arc from one pylon to the next. Within an hour of leaving Multan, you will reach the Rajib Tayyip Erdogan housing complex and its accompanying hospital, donated to the people here by the Turkish government after their homes were washed away during the floods of 2010. In the distance, smoke plumes from brick kilns where men, women, and children spend their entire lives on their knees under the sun, cooling, padding, stacking, and packing red bricks that are sent across the country. They will never leave this burning land, always thousands of rupees short of freeing themselves from their debts to the kiln's owners. Beyond the kilns, white canopies hover inches above the ground, protecting a swathe of GM crops. You'll pass warehouses built better than most homes here. Less than an hour away from Dara Ghazi Khan, you speed past fish farms and a smashed tractor, five people dead and no ambulance for miles. Then pass a board that welcomes you to the village of Shah Sadardin. July 2016, the villagers watched as reporters from all over, not just from Pakistan, but from abroad, from the BBC, The Guardian, The New York Times, turned up in Shah Sadardin to cover the story of Fuzia Azim. It was a great time to be a local reporter. If you weren't covering the story, you were working as a fixer, an interpreter, a driver. The possibilities were endless. 
the local journalists took the visiting reporters to Shah Sadardin over and over again. Everyone wanted to see where she came from. The villagers couldn't understand it. My friend, you have come here for nothing, a man said to one of the reporters. Strange people coming here just like that. What did he mean, the reporter asked. We have a tradition here that every second or fourth day, some girl is killed and thrown into the river. You media guys are creating a hype for nothing. A girl could be stuffed into a gunny sack, or the kind of bag used to carry wheat or sugar cane, and the bag could be filled with stones. The bag would sink to the bottom of the river. The girl would stay there, buried under the stones. End quote. Let me be clear. The reason these women are killed range from the serious transgressions of adultery and murder, but most often they are for things like expressing an opinion a male relative doesn't like, accidentally looking at a man who is not your husband or even a family member, or not wearing the proper modest attire of a Muslim woman. And the rules for this modest attire vary widely. Fuzia spent her childhood in this place. She knew what she wanted to be when she grew up by about age eight. When she's younger than that, she and her sisters would sneak out to the neighbor's house to watch television. When her parents learn of this, they ignore the hardship and purchase one for their own house. Whether they do this so as not to endure the shame of their girls going somewhere else or to please their daughters, it is not clear. Probably a bit of both. Sometime, when she is eight or nine years old, Fuzia is caught trying to play with a group of boys. Again, girls don't play with boys, so she is grounded and must stay inside the house. From a woman like her, quote, Now the whole world comes to her, streaming into her home through a big, bull-shaped satellite disc in the courtyard. She puckers her unpainted mouth. She doesn't know what the woman on the television yearns for, but she wants whatever it is. She knows the words to all these songs, and she loves to sing, mouthing each word. Her face twisted with the longing, the pleading. There is someone in the doorway. Her older brother is leaning against the frame of the door, watching her dance. She wants him to be proud, to marvel at the way she imitates the woman on the screen. He'll tell her parents, and they'll stroke her hair and tell her she's more beautiful than any of the women on television. They'll plead with her to do a little dance for them. No, not just them, but for anyone who comes to the house. They'll turn on the music and give the visitors a glimpse of just how she sashays and sways and knows all the words to every song. Just one, they'll cajole. Just sing one verse for us, our little nightingale. Let us hear that sweet voice. Do you know how far you'll go with a voice like that? She puts everything she's got into that dance for her brother. He's the one who named her when she was born. She loves to watch as he stands in the courtyard of their home, scowling, scissoring the air with his swift karate kicks. She tries to do it just like him. When he's not there, she sneaks into his room and tries on his shirts and pants and looks at herself in the mirror, the cuffed hems of the trousers falling fatly around her ankles. He strides towards her and she beams. She looks up at him in anticipation, thinks of how he'll retell this moment to their parents. And that's when he knocks the breath right out of her. End quote. In an interview Sana Meher had with Fuzia's parents, we know some things about her childhood. I quote again, Today they speak proudly of their daughter to me. She is a Shanshah, a queen, one whose name will always be remembered. The one who became famous, a brave-hearted girl who was a tomboy and loved to swim, ride bikes, run six miles at a time, and do karate. She was intelligent, far more than their other children, bringing home prizes for her work in school and becoming class monitor. She danced at the slightest hint of a tune. She was not naughty but knew how to stand up for herself. She beat up a man who teased her sister but was not cut out for hard work like harvesting, milking cows, cleaning, and cooking like the other women in the village. 
When she came to Multan for ten days at a time, she liked to sleep for much of the day. She liked to be fashionable. She loved children and spoiled them. End quote. I want you all to realize how unusual this is. This part of Pakistan is extremely conservative. Women essentially do not leave their homesteads. If for some reason they need to leave, they often wear a burqa that has no mesh screen, no eye openings, and a small funnel-shaped opening on the top of their head for ventilation. They cannot wear shoes. They are completely covered except their feet, which are unprotected from the burning ground or anything else. This forces them to look down to have an idea of where they are going and what might hurt the soles of their feet. This keeps them from even accidentally looking at any men outside of their family. Fuzia could very easily have been beaten for playing with boys if she had had different parents, but she's grounded. Now, Fuzia's brothers have the strongest opinions about a modest woman should be, what Fuzia and her sisters should be, and Fuzia keeps doing these things that, in their minds, a Muslim woman should not do. So they convince their parents to arrange a marriage for her in the hope she will settle into the role as wife and mother. Fuzia is wed to her mother's cousin at about age 14 or 15. I quote once more. It isn't long after the wedding that she comes home weeping and tells her parents about the cigarettes stubbed out on her skin, of the electric shocks that tremble her body, the threats of throwing acid in her face. He hates me because I'm beautiful and he is not, she says. I am young and he is not. He hates me. He would not let her visit them or meet her brothers. Something is wrong with this man. He wants to kill me. Every time her mother takes her back to her husband's home. We are Baloch, Anwar Bibi scolds her daughter as they make their way back to Kotadu, an hour away from Shah Sadardin. And Baloch do not believe in running away like this. His home is your home now. Anwar Bibi knows that the people in the village will tell her child, He can beat you. He can break your body with sticks. He can set you on fire. Whatever he does, you have to stay there. That's it. Anwar Bibi would finally see the burn marks when she bathed her daughter's body and wrapped her in a shroud on the day of her funeral. End quote. Eventually, Fuzia has a son. She's surprised when she actually loves the child. Not because she doubts a mother loving her child, but because she doesn't want any part of this life she has. Her son is still in arms when she runs out in the middle of the night to a shelter. Best guess she's about 17. But while she's there, he gets sick, and she's afraid the only way to get him help is to give him back to his father. She also knows that she will never be able to make a life in Multan. She will suffocate. Fuzia leaves the shelter and finds work as a bus hostess, and this is a bit like a stewardess for buses. In Pakistan, the coach bus has become a major mode of long-distance travel within the country and to other border countries. Fuzia uses the hostess work to get her to Islamabad. Quoting, it is 2011. She meets a man who goes by the name Mech, a snappy little nickname he coined for himself as a media event coordinator, M-E-C. And everyone tells her she needs to work with him if she wants to make it in the industry, if she really does want to become the singer she's dreamed about coming for years. They meet in her friend's office, and she waits quietly, watching his face as her friend plays Anyat, a religious hymn she has sung for him. The phone isn't the best, and she thinks the recording makes her voice sound tinny. He doesn't look too impressed. Max, sir, she interrupts the knot. Sir, listen to my knot. Please let me sing for you. Years later, he loves to recount this moment. He imitates her. He remembers looking across the table in that office of the marketing company where she worked and thinking how this woman from Multan who wears a hijab wants to enter show business. He would insist to everyone who asked about her once she became famous. She was a scarfian, a hijab wali, a woman who wears a hijab. 
She came to the city from a village, he would remind them. She couldn't become bold all of a sudden. She has a good face. There is a bit of innocency, he notes. And the voice isn't bad. Maybe she could land a couple of morning shows during Ramzan, Ramadan, with these nyats. Will you do ramp walks, he asks. She pauses. Whatever you say, Mixer. The girl wants it bad. He doesn't want to seem too eager. Okay, he says. He agrees to work with her. She beams. Don't be so happy, my dear. You're a bit overweight, he remarks. That takes the smile right off her face. But it's okay, he reassures her. Even the fatties can be worked on. You just need to have an artist within you. Can I just cut in here? It was like a record scratch every time someone called a woman fat in this book. The body shaming is disturbing. My PSA is done. Back to the book. It is the first time anyone has ever acknowledged that, yes, she has an artist within her. No one, not even her family, not the man she married and left, had believed in her. She had then fallen in love with a man she had met here in Islamabad, but even he had not supported her decision to stand on her own two feet. I don't want you to get into showbiz, he had pleaded with her. He thought she was doing it for the money. Don't worry about money. What do you want? A house? I'll get you a house. A car? What more do you want? What she wanted was to be a star. She'd left him. Now that she had Mech on her side, the only thing holding her back was Fuzia. If she wanted to be a star, she needed a star's name. A new name for a new life. Candy? No, that didn't work. QB? There was a popular singer who went by that, and she didn't want to share a name. My childhood crush once gave me a name. It's the name everyone knows me by. Q, queen. A, appealing. N, naughty. D, dazzling. E, elegant. E, exquisite. El lovely Candil. But Candil who? Candil from Shad Sadardin, a girl who belongs to the Baloch Marath tribe. Candil Baloch. Yes, that works. Candil. It's a beautiful name. What does it mean? Candil means the light. End quote. Candil works with Mech. She does runway shows. She uses social media. But it isn't until October 2013 that her career begins to take off. Quoting. October 2013, during that month, thousands of hopeful singers flocked to auditions for a chance to be on the first-ever Pakistan Idol, the local edition of the globally popular competition American Idol. Three judges have traveled to cities across the country to meet these young men and women. One man has brought dates for them, another flowers, and another sweets from Multan. Some children come into the hotel lobby where the contestants are waiting. They don't want to sing. They're just happy to spend the entire day sitting on the red velvet seats inside the air-conditioned hotel. Others don't have gifts and don't care if they make it through. It's enough for us that we got to meet you, they say to the judges. Some take an aeroplane for the first time in their lives when they make it past the first round and are flown to Karachi, Lahore, or Islamabad for further auditions. Others haven't gotten over the thrill of being in a hotel and turning on the taps at any time of the day or night to see a gush of hot water come forth. The contestants are in the running to win a car, a cash prize, and the chance to record an album. But everyone knows that the excitement of the show is the real prize. We have to keep Pakistan's background in mind, the actress says, when asked about the winner's prospects in the music industry that is all but dead anyway. Might as well give these people a generator, she feels. It would be of more use to them. Only 12 of the thousands of contestants from seven cities in the country will remain for the final round. But ultimately, it is a clip from a young woman who doesn't win one of these coveted spots. A 22-year-old in Lahore who goes by the name Kandil that gets all the attention. In the clip, she prances on camera in a pair of hot pink and black heels, an equally pink pair of tights, and a green silk shirt. 
Kandio snaps her fingers and dances and sits on the hood of a car, bouncing her head to the music playing from her mobile phone. I'm a professional model. I do modeling, shoots, brand shoots, she explains on a video recorded earlier at what appears to be her home. She sits cross-legged on a bed with an ornate headboard that has flowers and leaves carved into it. Her cheeks have been rouged and her eyebrows are swiped with too much dark powder. Her hair, parted down the middle, is pinned on each side with a schoolgirl's barrettes. I love singing so much, she says. It's not just a hobby, but a passion. I feel I can be Pakistan's idol. What is your name? asks the actress judge when Kandil walks into the room for her audition. Pinky? Kandil Baloch. Okay, I thought maybe it's Pinky. She points to the outfit. Everything is pink. You look so beautiful, Kandil gushes. I always see you on TV, but mashallah, you look so beautiful. Feel free to praise him too, or he'll get offended, the actress says, gesturing towards the male judge. Oh, there's no point in praising men. It makes no difference to them, Kandil replies. But I'm sure men must praise you, the third judge says. Kandil says she is nervous. She puts on a little girl's whining voice, and the judges cajole her to give it her best shot. But when she finally does sing, she's a natural. She isn't rooted to that oval plastic mat like the other contestants. She walks forward, beckoning to the judges with her arms, beseeching them with her words, closing her eyes as she sways. She stares straight into the camera. She isn't nervous. She's performing. And just to interject a bit here, it is really interesting that Sana Meher chooses to portray Kandil at this point in a really wonderful light. Honestly, if you watch her, she is doing all of these things. She looks like a natural, but the song itself is not great. But back to the story narrative. Later, the producers add some effects to the clip. One judge has smoke billing out of his ears. When Kandil hits a high note, there is a sound like a spring recoiling. The male judge buries his face in his hands. When they tell her to leave, she strokes the hair falling from those two schoolgirl barrettes and gives a small smile and says in that little girl's voice, Don't reject me, please, she pouts. I want to sing a song some more. The actress walks over to her and holds her by the shoulders and leads her out. The male judge pretends to cry. You fooled me, Kandil wails to the cameras waiting outside. I told my parents I'm doing this audition and they were so hopeful now. Now what am I going to say to them? They will just think they rejected our daughter. She's on the verge of tears. Her breath is catching on each word. Don't worry, cheer up, okay, the actress says, patting her shoulder. We'll see you doing modeling someday, as she walks away. Kandil covers her face with both hands and lets out a wail. The show's host pushes the mic towards her. She turns her back to him, doubling over as she sobs. Her shrieks echo in the hall. There is no one else there. The other contestants have gone away and now it is dark outside. The cameras follow her as she cups her face in her hands, the baby pink painted nails covering her eyes as she cries all the way out the door. Poor Kandil has wept off all of her kyal. Cole, the voiceover to the clip would later remark. Liars, all frauds. Watch it again. Do you see any tears? What I did there was my acting. Everything was planned from the start. It's all bakwas. The audition clip is ratings gold. Kandil is written about in one newspaper as one of the most memorable idol hopefuls. The reporter calls her Miss Pinky in the article in honor of the hot pink tights and black and pink stiletto heels she wore. A spectacle to behold. 
Her five minutes on Pakistan Idol rack up well over a million hits on YouTube in just a few days. End quote. Eventually, Kandil does admit that the audition was faked. The Pakistani Idol producers wanted her to be bad. It was a gimmick, and it worked. Of all things, Kandil is a social media addict, and her social media presence skyrocketed after her audition. Kandil records as much as she can and is not afraid to upload. Quote, in one video, she is messaging around with Mac in the market. Her eyebrows peek out above her big black-rimmed sunglasses, and she has pulled up the hood of her barka jacket to closely cover her hair. She pushes up her sunglasses and tilts her head from side to side, trying to find her best angle. Mac, in a yellow shirt and sunglasses, leans in behind her. Um, she says to the camera, how I'm looking? Mac grins. Tell me, she whines, a demand, a lilt of a petulant child, how I'm looking. End quote. How I'm looking? Tell me how I'm looking. Marvelous. Just marvelous? Extraordinary. This phrase, how I'm looking, becomes Kandil's catchphrase. The following is from the Desi Crime Podcast. How I'm looking? Beautiful? Sexy? Or hot? How I'm looking, beautiful, sexy, or hot. One could have easily mistaken these words to be uttered by a Kim Kardashian, a Kendall Jenner, or some other young woman on Instagram seeking fame if it wasn't for the broken English. The broken English, how I'm looking, not how am I looking, hides a story much deeper and significant than a simple appeal for likes on social media. This minor grammatical difference underscores a world altogether different than that of TikTok stars. These words, as salacious and incorrectly framed as they may be, mark a struggle that one sees only if they read between the lines. Okay, so I know this is a bit of a tangent, but the grammatical problem in Kandil's phrasing is not actually fixed by the change the Desi podcaster makes. No native English speaker would say, how I am looking, or even how am I looking? They would say, how do I look? Anyway. This video of Kandil in the marketplace is also the final step that shoots her to stardom. She becomes Pakistan's first-ever full-blown social media star. Kandil Baloch was the woman Pakistanis love to hate, and hated to love, and she was not afraid to push all the envelopes. In the next episode, I will discuss Kandil's transgressions, her stubbornness, and what many Pakistani women still see as heroism. Thank you for spending this half hour listening to It's All Relative. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and so forth, so this podcast can continue to exist. If you don't like what you hear, just don't ever listen again. It's that easy. I close with an earworm from the Sharif show, Kandil herself, singing Yala Habibi. Kandil!